So as that is happening and going on, I have the great pleasure of then being able to better introduce our guest speaker. So some of you know, because I think I wrote it out in a couple of our weekly, e or our, um, weekly update emails, I ran across this book a few years ago, All Creation Waits, and it's this beautiful Advent book. I was like, what could our church do? And it has these stories of animals and like how they go into hibernation or how they um, sort of nestle into the darkness to wait for spring. And there was one animal per day, and I was like, man, this just is really hitting something, especially as I was going through the pandemic. So I looked at it and I thought, you know, I should make a podcast. It's like, oh, who's the author? So I just popped her an email and I said, I know that you do not have to do this. I don't know if this hurts with royalties, but I would love to make an audio recording of this and just send it out every day. And like almost immediately, Gail wrote back and was like, yes, of course, do that. No problem at all. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we used it as a podcast. We're reusing it again this year. But then Gail just started emailing with me and it turned out she's like, I'm in Grand Rapids. And I was like, we should have her come speak. She's like, I'd be happy to even drive out. I offered Zoom, which is the easier out, right? She's like, no, I'll drive over. So I think it's lovely that we've got Gail with us. She is a poet and an essayist um, and a writer. The odd connection we have is that Ken's wife, Julia, roomed with her in undergrad, right? Yes. At Hope College mm -hmm. back in the day. And so um, that's a lovely connection that we have as well. Gail's got two sons, and one of her daughters is actually an Episcopal priest as well. So with that, let's welcome Gail. Really glad to have her with us this morning. Thank you. Gosh, thank you for that warm welcome. I am so honored, not only that you'd ask me to come and speak, but that so many of you have engaged with and embraced the book, All Creation Waits, including listen to, listen to Emily's podcast. Um, you know, when I wrote the book, I thought I'd written a book for myself, my best friend, and my mother. And it continues to amaze me that lots of people and people of all different identities have taken in the book. It has been on every continent except Antarctica, and maybe there too, but the Antarcticans just didn't write me about it. I mean, I know about it being on every continent because people have written to me, and I just, I continue to be amazed. And so, uh, also gratitude to you for engaging with the book and with the animals. I mean, the intent is not that you engage with me so much as um, we all begin to grow our reverence for the natural world. So, well, here we are, the second week of Advent. To most people, today is not the second week of Advent. It's 20 shopping days left till Christmas. <laughs> that has been true for a while now. In fact, a friend texted me the day after Halloween, the day after Halloween, to say that Starbucks had served her coffee that morning in a Christmas cup. Oh, wow. And the man who cuts my hair began playing in his salon the day after Halloween Christmas stop music nonstop. Well, by now, after Thanksgiving, the holiday season is in full swing. I want to spend some time with you this morning describing what I think is a healthier response to this season of the year than the holiday season. The bright rush of the holiday season, do you know, it is not a modern phenomenon. It's an ancient impulse, and I think it's one rooted in fear. 
It's a fear, too, that I think we all know, if we're honest. So I want to describe this morning how a true historically and biologically rooted Advent can be an antidote not only to the frenzy of the holiday season that we all feel, but also to the fear that lies underneath it. Learning that history of Advent and the biology of Advent, it changed my life. It led me to the animals and it led me eventually to the writing of the book. I want to take you along this morning on that story. How many of you grew up with even a vague sense of Advent? Anybody? Okay, more of you than, than me. I grew up in the church, but it was a non-liturgical church. I don't think I knew the word Advent until I was mm, maybe in my late 20s. I didn't grow up with Advent, but I grew up with Northern Michigan winters. In late November in Northern Michigan, the days are very short and gray most of the time. The air is damp and chill. You can, you can feel the earth kind of pulling in on itself. From the time that I was 10 or 11, I remember feeling in my body this weighted, compressed feeling every year. It, I hadn't felt that way in October, and I wouldn't feel that way again in March, which is also a gray, wet month in northern Michigan. It was kind of specific to this late November, December feeling. I didn't have words for that feeling then, but I think if I had had words, and if I'd said them out loud, given the family and culture I grew up in, I would have been told something like, shake it off, buck up, go do something, Productive, preferably. It was a Dutch Calvinist home, and product, productivity was the highest value, I, I must say. Well, this late um, November weightedness kept growing into December as the days got shorter and colder, and it was made worse, or at least more confusing for me, because myriad voices all around me were singing, it's the most wonderful time. And I was thinking, really? No, it is not. It is dark and it is cold and everything is dead or dying. But then, because nobody else was kind of acknowledging that, of course, what I felt was there must be something wrong with me. It was a Dutch Calvinist home, did I say that? There must be something wrong with me. Well, this weightedness stayed with me through my teens into my 20s. I married, I moved with my husband to Washington, D.C., which is a city warmer than northern Michigan in November and December. But believe me, it has its share of damp gloom, especially at the end of the year. Well, in the fall of 1985, just as the November gloom was about to approach, I was in the library at the Catholic University of America where I was doing some research for a writing project. And I was reading a book on the history of Christian liturgy. It was a pretty dry, dusty tome, really. But this is the way the Spirit of God works. Amazingly, in this dry, dusty book, in a dry, dusty stack of books in the theology section, there were fingers working in me as I read a couple of paragraphs. They worked like, you know how the cylinders of a lock line up? 
And when that lock popped open, I still remember the pop inside me, the aha of recognition. Now, to explain what I mean, I have to give you some history of Advent. This is what I was reading that day in the library, the history of Advent. Early leaders of the Christian church back in the seventh century, they instituted Advent as a kind of preparation for Christmas, which it still is, four weeks of preparation for Christmas. But nobody celebrated Christmas in the Western church until the fourth century, until about the year 330 AD, nobody celebrated Christmas. Early church leaders in the fourth century simply decided about then that they were going to assign Jesus the birthday of December 25. Jesus, that's your birthday, December 25. Why December 25? Today we use a calendar called the Gregorian calendar. But back then, in the fourth century, people used a calendar called the Julian calendar. And in the Julian calendar, December 25, not December 21st, is the winter solstice. The solstice marks that day, at least in the northern hemisphere, here where we live, where the sun, you know, seems to turn in the sky. It seems to come back north in the sky. That's why our days last a little bit longer and a little bit longer after the solstice. Well, that winter solstice day in the Julian calendar, December 25, had become, by the fourth century, by about the year 300, it had been, become the occasion for wild, raucous celebrations across European folk cultures. It was known by a lot of names. You might have heard the word Saturnalia or Yule, why had the winter solstice become the occasion for such a party in these northern European folk cultures? Agricultural people of the fourth century depended on the earth in a way that we can barely imagine. If you or your neighbors didn't grow it, you didn't need it. If you didn't grow enough of it, you wouldn't be eating come February. And even if you did grow enough of it to get you through the winter, what if there was no growing season next year? In late autumn, these agricultural people were feasting on their harvest. They were throwing their version of our Thanksgiving feast. But at the same time that they were feasting, they were growing more fearful by the day as they watched the sun's light grow dimmer and dimmer and as they felt the temperatures drop and drop. What looked to be the death of the earth, they knew could signal the death of them. Yes, they had plenty to eat now, they were eating up their harvest, but what if that sun, which they saw leaving, 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 what if it didn't come back? What if they didn't, weren't able to grow another crop? What would they eat? How would they survive? These people who were wed bodily to the earth, they felt that fear here. It was a primal bodily fear. Well, these early agricultural people dealt with that fear at the end of the year by what the Scottish anthropologist Sir James Fraser called sympathetic magic. When the light in the sky in November and December was dying, dying, 
these ancient people thought they could haul back the sun, they could call it back by lighting big bonfires on the tops of high hills and lighting torches everywhere. The idea was that if they let lit big fires and lots of fires, lots of light, they could call back the light. With food crops dying, they thought they could ensure the return of robust food crops in the following year by acting as if, in the present, there was abundance. The idea was that if we act as if there's abundance by eating and eating, then we could cause another round of abundance in the year to come. With animal and insect life dying, they thought they could ensure the return of vigorous animal life in the year to come, the next year, by kind of ceaseless activity of the human animal at the moment. Well, lights everywhere, feasting, ceaseless activity, unchecked extravagance. Does that sound familiar? What we call the holiday season is just the way that we people who think we're modern are acting on an impulse of people that we call primitive. When fear of the growing dark and the cold come over us too, we think that lights and feasts and activity and extravagance can stave off that dark and cold and fear just in the same way that ancient people did. People are people. I somehow knew this at 10 or 11. I really did. I think, that, I think now that the reason for my dark, weighted feeling is that I knew that beneath all the lights and feasting and activity, light and life were still dying. And that that really is a cause for fear, bodily fear, in humans, ancient and modern. Well, leaders of the church, the early church, saw this. They saw that the wild Saturnalia and Yule celebrations of their people, as they pulled out all of the stops, were at best unhelpful. They weren't prudes, these church leaders, but they saw these celebrations as, yeah, unhelpful. And in the end, an expensive disappointment. Fun maybe for a short time, but they weren't what brought back light and hope to the people. So what they were trying to do with Advent was to remind the faithful of the way that light and hope really come back. Not with ceaseless human activity and lights and feasts, but how do they really come back? They understood in their people that the fear of the dark was real. They weren't trying to deny the fear, but they said, we're going to remind you, we're going to remind all of us of the way that light and hope truly return. So they said to the faithful, okay, on December 25, when the rest of the world is reeling and soaked in celebration, we're gonna celebrate the birth of the true sun, the one who's the light of the world. Before we celebrate on December 25, the coming of the light, we have to prepare ourselves. 
And paradoxically, the way we prepare for the coming of true light is to acknowledge the death of light, the death of another cycle of life. And when we do that, we face our sorrow. We face our sorrow not only that another season of bright life and growth is over, but we also come to grips with the fact that even in this past growing season, all that we hoped for didn't come to us. We face the fact that the really lush, abundant life that we want for ourselves and for the people we love, for everyone really, it didn't come to us in this last season of light and life. And it may not come next year. And it may not come to us in our lifetimes. In the season of Advent preparation, what we face is the fact that the peaceable kingdom the reign of shalom, a season of well-being, has not come to us yet. By asking us to squarely face the darkness and our losses at the end of the year, the Advent tradition isn't asking us to capitulate to just gloom and doom. No, it's asking us instead to face our false hopes in the power of intense human activity to bring back light and hope. It asks us instead to focus on the truth about the way light always comes. Light always comes to us, doesn't it? From beyond our powers to cause it. And it usually comes in small hidden ways, like a few more seconds of daylight on the day after the solstice. Like a powerless infant born to peasant refugee parents in a cave among animals. That, the church leaders were saying, is what we, the faithful, need to remember across all the centuries. Not that a lot of human noise and activity bring back light and hope in our lives, but that light and hope come to us as it wills. The light comes on its own volition, in its own timing, and it comes to us while we wait in the hidden dark. So they said to the faithful, the way we prepare for the birth of the light of the world is that we're going to sit in the dark and wait. Not in gloom, but with expectation that the light will come, but will come on its own terms, in the dark. That's why they called the season Advent, from the Latin ad veniri, which means the coming. They were certain it would come, but in its own timing. They were saying to us, the dark is not an end. It's a door. It's the way a new beginning comes. But in a culture 
with constant light, lights everywhere, even in our pockets, with pings and notifications and noise and music, ceaseless activity, guilt if we don't join in, how in the world do we practice quietly waiting in the dark for the birth of the true light? Well, the church leaders in their time with of celebrations with constant lights, bonfires, torches, their own kind of ceaseless activities and noise. They said, we have a plan. Here's what we're going to do. Three steps, three things we can do to quietly wait in the dark for the way true light comes. We're going to fast for four weeks before Christmas. We're going to pray and we're going to give away. We're going to fast not out of gloom, but to hone our hunger for the true feast of Christmas. We're going to pray, not because we reject human camaraderie, but to quiet our lives so we remember, we remember what really matters, what really lasts. And we're gonna give away, not accumulate, because we want to get the clutter out of our lives and hearts and minds so we have more room to receive the gift of true life. We're going to fast. We're going to pray. We're going to give away in the four weeks before Christmas. Now, the genius of this approach to Advent is that it asks humans to do what the natural world is doing this time of year. Fasting, praying, and giving away, these are things, these are human practices in harmony with the rhythms of the earth this time of year. What are trees doing? Trees have dropped their leaves. Plants have gone dormant. They've shut off their growing juices. Animals have slowed way down, many of them hiding in the earth or in the mud. Even the squirrels, who, who seem to be running around just as much in December as in August, have many fewer hours to run around because they're dependent on daylight. The whole natural world is stripping down. It's directing all of its energy to the essentials that ensure survival. And fasting, praying, giving away, these are just practices that allow us to to strip down and direct our energy to the essentials that ensure our true survival. These are practices that tell us we can tune in this time of year to rhythms humming in the cells of every single living creature on earth, at least in the northern hemisphere. Advent wisely encourages us to live in rhythm with the earth. And why? Because we are made of earth. That's what the word human means. Human comes from the same root as the Latin word for humus, soil. Humus, human. Human beings are just beings made of humus, made of soil, made of the earth. Not to live in rhythm with the earth, with our earth-made bodies, it puts us all out of sync. I think that's what I knew as a child of 10 or 11. I, I felt my body out of sync with all creation around me. I think that's why I experienced this kind of um, depression, really, 
every Advent. I think that's why a lot of us do. Just before I left today, I had a text from a friend who said, I'm sorry, I have been out of touch. My husband and I have just been sunk in a kind of dark depression. I think that's why all of us are easy prey for the costly distractions that the marketplace wants to gleefully throw at us this time of year. Well, this is what I discovered. This, this is when that aha moment happened to me in the library. I said, I'm not crazy. I am really the same one here because I am feeling the rhythms of the whole earth. I'm tuned in. I'm tuned into the losses that are happening all around me. But that history also said to me, you can do something healthy, healthful, and restorative with this weight that you feel. You're sensing the losses, but you can do something helpful and healthy with it by watching the earth, watching the creatures, and taking these practices that the church has given us fasting, praying, and giving away, and living by them in this four-week preparation until Christmas. So from 1985 on, when I discovered all this, my husband Doug and I, and he needed some persuading, let me tell you, but we began to practice not a Christmas countdown in December, but a true Advent. We left all the decorations in the boxes, didn't turn on any of the cute Christmas music. We had just a simple Advent wreath in our home, which we lit and where we sang each evening, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And then when Emmanuel came on Christmas Eve, we pulled out the decorations, we turned on the Christmas music, cranked it up loud, danced, went to church, had a great feast and a great celebration, and then we celebrated the 12 days of Christmas. So we had an ongoing celebration. That annual December sadness, it left my soul. And instead I began to look forward to late November and December as a kind of season where I could do what the rest of the world, natural world, was doing. It became a season of quiet waiting and real contentment. Well, all of this worked well enough until we had a child. And that child came home one day and he said, Mama, why is Evan's house all Christmassy and ours is dark and quiet? We tried explaining to him that we were waiting with all creation in the dark. This was not compelling to a small, busy little boy of four. So I thought, okay, we have got to make this idea of waiting with all creation more vivid. What do we do? Aha, an advent calendar, that's what we need. Well, if any of you have bought an advent calendar lately, you know that you can buy one for every interest and fetish. I underline all. The ones that I've seen lately, uh, yesterday, actually featured a gourmet tea bag behind each of the little cutout doors, or candles, or wine, chocolates, you've seen them. 
But when I was looking back in 1995, when my little boy was four, there were basically two kinds of advent calendars for children. There were the kind that featured the um, like gift packages and Rudolph behind the cutout little doors. And there were kinds that featured the cast of the nativity, the wise men, the sheep, the shepherds behind the cutout little doors, which was utterly frustrating to me. Those were pictures of Christmas, not Advent. I wanted my little boy to know in Advent, not the birth, but the reason for the birth, that Advent is about darkness and light, fear and hope, loss and a new beginning. So I had no choice but to make uh, our own Advent calendar. It's the shape of a kind of a big house or a barn and it's all black on the front. And then you open the doors and behind door number one, I painted a picture of a turtle buried in the mud. Now I drew a turtle on the advent calendar because in a stroke of providence, providence God was working with me. Days before I started to make it, my son's uh, godmother and my best friend sent me her reflection on turtle as a good symbol of what a healthy soul might do when it's facing a dark and threatening time. So Turtle gave me this striking picture, image, of how waiting in the dark could be really restorative, as it is for Turtle. I also drew a turtle on the advent calendar because my son, like most small children, loved pictures of animals. Well, after Painted Turtle, other animals started queuing up to be on the advent calendar. There was a bear, a loon, a snake, a doe, a crow, all of them I found with wisdom for this time of the year. All of them symbols for how a healthy soul might respond when it comes up against a dark season of any kind. And there are 24 of them because there are 24 different responses. Painted Turtle goes almost as good as dead, not breathing for six months burying herself, essentially seeming dead, while the squirrels are bounding around. But they're drawing on the power of memory. There is a different way of each creature, because all of us will have different ways of responding to the dark in different years and in different seasons. Well, this calendar became... uh, a kind of a central feature of our Advent home. And our boys have loved it. They still come home some days in Advent. They're 31 and 26 now. They still come home some days in Advent and want to open the doors on the Advent calendar. It took me about 18 years to come up with the idea that maybe this Advent calendar Uh, for my children could become a book of reflections for adults. I don't know, I guess my mind and heart were busy with other things for 18 years. But I also think now that there probably wasn't a readership for this book back in 1995. We are only lately coming to grasp the idea that I wanted to convey in this book and in my book for Lent too, Wild Hope, which is that 
animals are not on the earth to be merely interesting or amusing or to be used for our purposes. They are interesting. They're amusing. Often, squirrels, muskrats. But they're more than that. Animals can be our companions, our guides to a life well-lived on earth. Turns out, wise people have been telling us this for ages. The author of the book of Job, writing maybe as early as 2000 BC, wrote this. Ask the animals, they'll teach you. And the birds of the air, they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, it will teach you. And the fish in the sea, they will inform you. 4,000 years later, current cosmologist and scholar Brian Swim writes, as humans allow themselves to be fascinated by the other creatures, we can become convinced that in some amazing way, they're essential to us. We can become amazed by how essential they are for our zest, our sense of well-being or happiness. If we would attend to them, we would see their colossal grandeur. And my favorite, who might be uh, Meister Eckhart, 13th century philosopher, theologian, monk, and mystic, his words open the book, All Creation Waits. He wrote, Every single creature is full of God. Every creature is a word of God. If I spent enough time with the tiniest creature, even a caterpillar, I would never have to prepare a sermon. So full of God is every creature. So full of God is every creature. Hundreds of men and women across the ages have been telling us this. We modern people have either forgotten or ignored them and at great cost to us. Now, maybe we're waking up to read the book of God in every single creature, to hear the word of God in every single creature. And in this season, this season of Advent, what are they saying to us? They're saying, strip down to essentials, the essentials that really ensure your survival. Wait with us here in the dark. Yes, in the dark. The dark isn't to be feared because the dark is not an end. It's a door. It's the way a new beginning comes. That's the same message that we heard from the prophet Isaiah earlier. The people who walked in darkness, they're the ones who have seen the great light. Those who dwell in the valley of the shadow of death, on them have light shined. In Advent, you see, we have this opportunity to affirm the central tenet of our faith. It's that darkness, it's that sorrow, loss, even death, they're not ends. They're just the door to a new beginning because there is one behind the darkness, every darkness, 
who is ever creating something new. Behold, I make all things new. It's here, right here in the dark, that the true light comes to us, the light that brings lasting joy, abiding hope. Isn't that the light we want? Not the glitz and the glitter. Yeah, but that true light. And if we want that light, we have to wait for it on its terms. Yes, here in the dark. Because it's the people who walked in darkness who have seen the great light. Those who dwell in the valley of the shadow of death, on them, on us, has light shined. May it be so for all of us this Advent. Amen. Thank you so much, Gail. We usually do a moment of silence or guided meditation. And I would like to invite you to just sit with a moment of silence. And if it's helpful to you to maybe name some of the things that you're feeling sorrow or hopelessness about, that we can name those. And then I'll just pray out some hope and some peace over those things. We'll just come Holy Spirit. Creator God, we know ours is a culture that doesn't love to sit with sadness and sorrow and grief and darkness and the unknown. But we ask, we thank you that you make space for us to sit with those things and to be able to name them. And we ask that as we sit with these during this Advent season, that we would experience that hope, that expectation that light that is starting to break forth, that we'd be able to see that door that leads to the coming light. Restore our hope, restore our peace. In your name we pray, amen. I want to say, Gail, I think it was a really, this is um, such an important conversation that we need to be having in churches. It's because we're we're watching, especially I know our young people, we've been watching just the destruction of the earth. And we know that like in the lifetimes, especially of like kids who are my niece's age, true concern over what that's going to look like. And part of that's because we've, in our faith, we've sort of like taken humans and put them out up over creation. 
right? And we talk about that we need to experience the oneness of all creation and understands our creatureliness within the creation, that we are part of it, that we are from the dirt, that we work in tandem with all of these other animals and systems. We're not over and above it. So it's like one of the most important spiritual lessons I think that we can learn. And I think the work that you're doing is actually one of the most prophetic pieces of work that's happening in the church today to help us rediscover these natural rhythms that we have. So thank you so much for that thoughtful word that you brought.